This is Sound Lives, a new Music Box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and you're listening to Anthony Davis's Little Richard's New Wave from his score from Melissa Fenley's ballet, Hemispheres, performed by Davis's group Epistemy. My guest is Anthony Davis, whom I spoke with in between rehearsals for his opera X, which is being performed in May by the Detroit Opera. We spoke about the worlds of jazz and opera and how for him, they're not all that far apart, as well as the urgency for artists to challenge the status quo. You've worked in so many different kinds of musical idioms over the last half century. So it's hard to zero in on things, but of course, with you know getting the Pulitzer for Central Park Five, everybody's paying attention to the operas. For a long time, everybody paid attention to the small jazz combo stuff that you do, and you sort of existed in these two worlds, which to an outsider who doesn't necessarily understand music might seem like they're polar opposites. It never occurred to me that they were opposites at all. I mean, I felt that one informs the other. For example, yesterday I was working with improvisers in X. We had a rehearsal with the, the improvisers two days ago. I still try to bring that spontaneity and the musicality of the improviser's mind to what I'm doing in the opera, too. But of course, improvisation in opera, you know, aside from your operas and maybe a handful of other people, you know, who mind this terrain, is not something you would normally associate with opera. It's like nobody's improvising in Puccini. Yeah, but they might do in Baroque. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, that's the thing is I was thinking about these relationships. I thought, well, both small combo jazz and opera really are at their best when it's a symbiotic collaboration between the various participants. And also while both are group efforts, they offer opportunities for individuals to shine. Right, exactly. And it's been wonderful for me working with these new singers that I have, I've been working with uh, here in Detroit and see them make their part theirs. And that's always always a process of, and sometimes particularly in the role of street, you know, that I created, which was so identified with Thomas Young, who's a wonderful, incredible singer. Victor Ryan Robertson is doing it now. He's making it his, so he's doing different things. They would come up to me and say, well, that's not exactly what's on the page. And I say, well, that's okay. <laughs> because it's also making it his. I like the fact that, and particularly in that role, that they, every performer can kind of make it reflect them and bring their own personality to it because the personality is so important. Sometimes I think about Cab Calloway and performers like that who were bigger than life and whatever they did was Cab Calloway, but still it invested bringing Cab Calloway into a role or into something as it uh, reflects a whole tradition and a whole musical history. And of course, with a part, like you mentioned, the, the role of street, which is a double part because that singer is street and also Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad, yeah. Two very different characters. Yeah, they're parallels. They're both hustlers in different ways. You know? Right. <laughs> you know, so what people miss is that sometimes their message has similarities too. But what I wanted to bring to Elijah is, you know, is then when you sing Elijah, it's more line and it's different quality, but I think that's a great challenge for a performer to transform themselves, you know, transform their their vocal approach too. Now, this whole thing about getting interested in opera, I want to take this back to the beginning. You began 
your life immersed in classical music before you ever got involved with jazz, as far as I know. Right. That's true. I was a classical pianist. I know I took piano lessons and then I was very serious about it. But, you know, I always had jazz and we always had jazz in our house. My father was a huge Art Tatum fan. And he also had Dave Brubeck records when they came out and then got a Chad Charles Mingus record, you know, Blues and Roots record. I remember I, I really got into that when I was when I grew up. As you can hear in X, because some of the uh, harmonic progressions are right from Monin, you know, from, from that. So I grew up hearing that, too. My dad would love Kurt Viles. I heard uh, Three Penny Opera was probably the opera I heard the most before. And then my grandfather was an opera fan. I didn't see them that much. They lived in Hampton. He, he was the treasurer of Hampton Institute with the historically black university in uh, Hampton, Virginia. He initiated an opera series to bring black opera performers to perform at Hampton. So when I meet older opera singers like, you know, Betty Allen or people I met a number of years ago and, uh, or Leontine Price, they all performed at my grandfather's series. I would hear, you know, Verdi and Puccini when I would go to his house. But then he also loved organ trios and, uh, and gospel music. That's what I, that I associate with him. So I had a little bit of contact with that, but mostly I was immersed in classical stuff, you know, playing Chopin, Beethoven, Mozart, all that stuff. Were you writing any music at that time? I wrote music when I was little, like second grade, first grade. I was living in Princeton, New Jersey, and they had a music school called Nassau Street Music School. It was really interesting because you had two lessons a week. So you had one lesson, regular one-on-one -on -one lesson. Then you had a group lesson with a cardboard keyboard, and you have to sing. You'd have to sing all the parts, which is great because you know, I could practice on a desk at school, in study hall or whatever. I could imagine the keyboard, hear the music in my head, and just do it. Also, part of it, we had to do a recital every month. Part of the recital, you had to do one of your own pieces. You know, I wrote pirate songs and stuff like that, you know, because I was in second grade. But then when I moved to State College, Pennsylvania, I, that kind of stopped it. It was just traditional classical piano I was doing. There's a story I love that I've heard you tell that at one point you were going to Italy with your family and a friend, as a joke, gave your father a copy of Monk in Italy. And that's what brought Thelonious Monk into your life. Forever. Exactly. I love that record. I wore out that record. I listened to it over and over. I think what got me was that it was 1966 and I was, you know, middle of the civil rights thing. And I had this kind of crisis going to Italy. I started to think about what it meant to be a black person. Because where I grew up in State College was, you know, my brother and I were the only black people in the school. I began to think about that and I began to resent the fact that I was playing all white composers and that really upset me. Discovering Monk, I was really interested because it was seem a seamless transition from his role as an improviser and as a composer. It seemed to be one voice. And when I've heard him play and when I heard his compositions, it seemed to be a common aesthetic. And that's really what drew me to his music. Initially, we didn't have a piano, and I had to go to the Steinway store in Torino, Italy, to practice. At first, I was playing Beethoven and stuff, you know, and I was playing a lot of Schumann then. So I was playing that Vanishy Stuck stuff. One day, because I've been listening to this monk stuff, so I started, trying, I started picking out Straight No Chaser, and then I Ruby My Dear, and, and I started playing monk tunes in the Steinway store, and they, they liked it. They liked that I was playing monk tunes and so by the end of the time I was I actually did a couple concerts in Italy where I played half program of classical piano 
and then half program of doing monk tunes and then I started doing my own compositions. That's when I first started writing for pieces that I could improvise around. Wow, so it really was Thelonious Monk, that fortuitous joke gift turned that was into it. this life-changing, I love yeah. when things like that happen. Well, and also they had this great record store in Torino where they had this conveyor belt with, which would bring the record, right? And you could listen to like three or four records before you bought one. So I would listen to all these Coltrane records because I heard Coltrane with Monk and I heard Miles and I Miles records and then Sonny Rollins. And, but then I started listening to Bud Powell and started expanding and expanding, you know, like just every day going to this record store and listening to rec some records before, before I went home. <laughs> But in terms of like a lifelong influence, even to the point, you know, when you made your first album, when you made Past Lives, there's a lot of Monk on there. And you have a very, very personal, idiosyncratic, idiomatic version of Monk that you do. That's wonderful on that record. Let's listen to Anthony Davis play Thelonious Monk's composition Evidence from Davis's 1978 debut recording, Past Lives on Red Records. Listening to Monk really opened my mind to music and to what I could become as a composer and also as a, as a player, as an improviser. And uh, I started changing my technique. I'm playing with flat fingers and stuff. <laughs> I, was probably, I, was like, I was like, I said, you know, my classical, normal classical technique that doesn't sound right to me. So I did a lot of things like emulating Monk and learning Monk from studying his music and then meeting someone like Steve Lacey, who was so immersed in Monk, too. I mean, he was immersed in Monk, and I didn't have the chance to play with Monk. I had the chance to hear Monk live one time. It was supposed to be a Monk tribute concert at Carnegie Hall, and Monk was in the audience, and he just stood up and walked on stage and played wow. the whole, whole concert. Wow. <laughs> and that was unbelievable. I think Barry Harris was supposed to play, but Monk played the whole, whole concert. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> So all of this, this kind of transformation, it's like classical pianist, discovers Monk, does all this stuff. But then you went off to Yale. Were you studying composition at Yale? What were you? Initially, I was a philosophy major. I studied philosophy, and, and that interest started in Italy, too. I had a wonderful teacher who started a philosophy class when I was in 10th grade in Italy. It was basically existentialism 101, you know. <laughs> it had... He read Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and, you know, Sartre and Camus and all that stuff, but which is a dangerous thing for a 10th grader, I think, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> I could have turned into a nihilist pretty easily. But anyway, <laughs> there's this guy who read nausea as an undergrad. He dropped out of school as a result. Well, I, that's what I was <laughs> about to do. By the time I got to Yale, I was, I was so like, oh. Grades, you know, who cares? We're all gonna die. <laughs> you know, but but Nietzsche, Nietzsche opened my mind to uh, opera. It was through Birth of Tragedy and reading that that I became interested in the idea of opera and what opera could be. But I thought that what Nietzsche was writing about in terms of the Apollonian and Dionysian and kind of 
binary that he created was more applicable to American music than it was to German because of that we're African and we're Europeans. The combination of the musical foundation in two great cultures. So I thought opera could have that. An American opera ideally would be that kind of expression. Before we jump to opera, I want to get one last thing before you started doing that. The early work you were doing and working with people like Marion Brown and Anthony Braxton and Wadato Leo Smith, who you've continued playing with for years, I sort of think of that, it's like, okay, you might have gone to Yale and gotten a music degree. I didn't know that you were a philosophy major, but I thought... I did eventually get a music degree. I couldn't write my thesis on Hegel. I, I decided to be a music major my love senior year. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I had to go take all the required courses, which was funny. But I thought, you know, working with those people was probably better, and you learn more than anybody you would have learned from at Yale. Yeah. Well, I did have one teacher yell, Robert Morris, who was a great theorist, and he had a composition class, so I took his composition class. I met Wadada my freshman year at Yale. It was interesting because, you know, he, he was playing duos at a duo with Marianne Brown, and he was living in New Haven. So eventually, George Lewis and I, who were both freshmen at Yale at the same time, got together with Wadada to play as a trio. We were playing Wadada's music, which was great because, uh, for me, it was an introduction to that whole world. That threw... Through Wadada, I met Braxton, and I met so, so many other musicians. The other connection I had was I took classes at Wesleyan in South Indian music. And through Jay Hogarth and other people, I met Ed Blackwell, who was teaching at Middletown. And Marion Brown was also on, in Wesleyan at the time. And so uh, I started playing with Blackwell and Mark Elias. We had a trio and then with Jay Hogard, a vibraphonist. So that was great because, uh, you know, through Blackwell, I got to meet Ornette and go to New York, go down to Prince Street to see, play pool with Ornette. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that must have been. <laughs> that was really fun. And Ornette was so great. Uh, I think that time Blackwell was giving DiNardo drum lessons. So I would go down with Blackwell, take him down to the city, and then hang out with Ornette during the drum lesson. It was great to get to know him. I always loved his music, too. So. so encountering those people, how much of their ideas seeped into your composition ideas, if any? Because your music seems to be, for lack of a better term, very heterodox in that it embraces so many things open-endedly and uses them for what they can be used for. It's a means to an end but never an end in and of itself. Right. Well, I think I, there were tremendous influence. I mean, Wadada particularly was a huge influence on me because I got together Wadada regularly. And some of it was just listening. When I first met Wadada, I was really immersed in Monk and Bud Powell. I was a really a bebop piano player. <laughs> I was really more, more that was coming from that. And Herbie Hancock and McCoy Tyner. McCoy Tyner was a big influence to me too. And then um, when Dada, I started listening more to Ellington, older music, James P. Johnson, Fats Waller, Stride pianist. Because he came up to me one day and, he, and I was playing with my trio and he said, what happened to your left hand? You know, I was playing bebop with chords and left. And he said, don't you improvise with your left hand? And I said, so I took that as a thing. So I did a solo on my left hand, you know, what the hell? I began to really also develop my own musical language also listening to Cecil Taylor a lot. You know, Cecil was a big influence. And, and then later when I moved to New York, I got to know Cecil really well. And he was someone who was a real mentor for me as well. But then developing different kind of hand independence, you know, like, so I could play. And then I used to imagine we'd go with Ornette, 
and playing with Blackwell and Ornette, I was thinking of how I could be Charlie Hayden in the left hand and Don Cherry in the right. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> I wanted to see how I could do that. Yeah, but uh, I started playing with two lines at once, and, and that helped me a lot because when I played with Leroy Jenkins, I started. I was in a lot of groups without bass player. We had a group with Willis Leroy, Andrew Cyril, and me with violin, drums, and piano. So I had to take on a lot of the other functions, you know. That was a challenge and interesting for me. And a way to develop, you know, different aspects of my piano playing and also uh, fed into my overall aesthetic. But, you know, I think with Badada, you know, like, and then being introduced to Ellington Suites and studying Ellington's music, I began to think about long form, about creating long form compositions. I was really into Mingus too, so I studied a lot of Mingus's music. You know, I started thinking about how to create longer forms, so I wrote science fiction suites that were based on science fiction novels. And my band at that time with George Lewis and Hal Lewis and Wes Brown and uh, uh, Jerry Hemingway. So we had a really, really, really great, great group. Is so the group we, that led to Epistemy, or is it? It was before, it was, it was called Advent at the time, so it was, Named him after the speakers. <laughs> George came up with the name. So George and I would had, had a group, the group together. And we did some of George's music too. So we also did some of Henry's music and Muhal's music. George brought in a lot of music from AACM. So, so for a college group in the 70s, we, we were pretty, <laughs> pretty out there and then doing our own music. So I wrote a series with the Left Hand of Darkness suite I wrote. Oh, uh, Dune wow. Suite. And then I wrote a piece called Madagascar that was because I found out my family, my ancestors came from Madagascar, which was weird, you know, for a black person in America to be from the East Africa, have roots in East Africa. I wrote a lot of uh, large-scale pieces for the group. So I began to develop my own voice and what kind of music I was going to do. And also then playing with Odata, with that New Delta Acre, with um, Wes Brown, Initially, just with Wes and Modata and me, and then later with Farone and Oliver Lake. So I never knew about the whole Madagascar thing with you. Does that explain your deep interest in Indonesian music because of the relationship between Madagascar and Indonesia? That well, not really. I mean, I but it just came from music from Wesleyan because I they have a gamelan or gamelan. I went to a wine performance in Middletown. That wiped me out. I was so excited about it. I started writing a series of pieces called Wyangs. You know, initially solo piano and then for my group. And then Wyang 5 was for orchestra and piano. And then I did a two piano thing for with Ursula Oppens. I wrote. I was really captivated by the music and also the drama of it. I began to think about what it means to create a rhythmic drama, a rhythm drama. And that influenced my approach to opera too, as well. Let's listen to a bit of Anthony Davis's Wyang Five, performed by the Boston Modern Orchestra Project, conducted by Gil Rose, with Anthony Davis as the piano soloist, released on BMOP Sound.
that's actually a, a good point to transition to talking about opera because as I was saying before, this whole idea of you're using different sound worlds as means to an end. I would almost say if you would allow the, uh, the metaphor here to use the music to do what it needs to do by any means necessary to tell a story, <laughs> which brings yeah. us to like Malcolm. Little Malcolm quote, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's interesting because all these different musics create a different atmosphere. They can really delineate a drama, describe, you know, places, et cetera. And I found this really interesting for me to uh, explore the intersection. Also, because opera is so much about memory. You always go back to things that are in the opera. You're creating your own kind of world in it. But also has the extra world of what it refers to in terms of opera, the whole genre of opera, and also what other music you bring into opera. What I draw on in terms of influences in the opera is part of the creation of the world that I want to create in an opera. My second opera, for example, was all Wang's music. It was, was controversial because it was all influenced by the Indonesian influence and the Wang music I'd been developing. And, wa and I wanted to write it in contrast to X, which was much more expansive. And it's always fun for me to discover what the language of the opera will be and how it reflects the story and the narrative. I get the science fiction thing because you were reading science fiction novels. You were inspired by Ursula Le Guin, so you're inspired to do the second opera, Under the Double Moon, which is a science fiction opera. But what led you to decide that Malcolm X was a great narrative for an opera? It started with my brother, Christopher. My brother, Kip, was an actor, and he was in a play called El Haj Malik, playing the role of Malcolm X in the play. So I went to the play, and after the show, he came up to me and he said, you know, you should write a musical about Malcolm X, because in the autobiography, there's so many references to music. I mean, he was around musicians and music, particularly, you know, the jazz music. He was there all the time. All the musicians I know from that, who knew him in, in that period, but he was around the music. Now, even Billy Taylor told me the story that when he had a radio show on WBAI, that he had a jazz show, that literally a Malcolm gave his sermon on Sunday just before the jazz show. So he would always stay for the music. So I was, had this image of Malcolm listening to John Coltrane's quartet, you know, or <laughs> Sonny Rollins or something, you know. So I felt that the link to the music was really evident. So my brother's initial concept that he talked to me said, was the idea of the parallel of the development of the politics and Malcolm's odyssey as a, a becoming a, a political figure with the evolution of the music. So you could start, you know, in the late 30s and 40s in musical style into the bebop period in the late 40s, early 50s, into modal period and the avant-garde. Some of that is actually in the opera. That's what the inspiration for scene two and act one, scene two, when, when you're in Boston, I'm sort of creating this thing of you know, all of a sudden he's being introduced to the city and he's really being introduced to the music. Because in the autobiography it talks about hearing uh, Lionel Hampton's orchestra in Boston. So the bass player in Lionel Hampton's orchestra in, in the early 50s was Mingus. And Mingus wrote Mingus Fingus for Lionel Hampton's orchestra. And I love Mingus anyway, so I thought I have to do something in, about that in relation to Mingus makes sense. And then um, I wrote the uh, Ella's aria. I borrowed from the Left Hand of Darkness suite. The first part was 
actually called Left Hand of Darkness originally. So I wrote a melody on top of what was Left Hand of Darkness and, and, and actually had the alto and trombone melodies come in in between. So it, it worked very well in coming with Bella's Welcome, Welcome Malcolm to Your Home in Boston. And then it changes, all of a sudden it modulates its very kind of Ellington chords that take you into F minor, which is like Mingus's F minor D flat. It's like his Pithecampus erectus, you know, moaning. I could just think 10 million pieces like that of Mingus's. But I realized that the progression later, actually didn't know, know until later, that that progression kind of comes from the tune, You Don't Know What Love Is. But it was interesting to me because in a sense, it's like, the title of that song is the underscoring for the scene. You don't know what love is until you've heard the meaning of the blues. He didn't understand the meaning of the blues yet. And that he's going to learn from Street about the blues because all the Street's music is really rooted in the blues. So the conversion he has from Malcolm Little to Detroit Red is through the blues. Think about the blues as subversive. And the blues is subverting middle-class aspirations and in a way that it was a reflection of what Street would call the hopelessness of the middle class aspirations as being a response to that, a kind of subversive response to it, rather than a different kind of subversive response to the Nation of Islam or something. So the only option he has is the hustler's life. Now, interesting that you're saying all this, because as I was listening yet again to X last night, to that wonderful recording, which is sadly out of print, hopefully someone will reissue that well hopefully there'll be new recordings as well um, yeah we're doing a new one in june oh fantastic that's great <laughs> but i'm listening to this and i'm thinking to myself i'm listening to that section with street and one of the things i'm hearing in street's phrasing i don't know if it's me or if i'm crazy but i'm like this is so interesting because it's not operatic phrasing it's not like bel canto phrasing or verismo phrasing it's abby lincoln's phrasing and i'm yeah, like oh yeah wow. I'm hearing, you know, the way she phrased things there. Because Thomas is a great jazz singer. Yeah. Let's listen to Thomas Young as Street and the pool hall scene in Act 1, Scene 2 from the original recording of the opera X. Music by Anthony Davis, libretto by Thulani Davis, released on Gramavision. Shoot your shot, cut the talk, admit your two bits are mine. You'll be owing me next week's pay before you get out from behind. Hey there! Take a look, it's a country boy. Up from the farm. I once had that look before, but now when their work is done, they all come to me. That was a revelation to me because when I originally wrote the opera, Street was a base because I wanted to get as far away from sport and life as I could because people might relate it to sport and life. Actually, Avery Brooks was the first Street. Then when we did it, Avery wanted to play Malcolm. So I said, of course, it'd be great because he's an incredible actor and incredible musician too. When I I was doing auditions for Elijah Muhammad, and Thomas came in and sang the daughter of the regiment aria of all the high seas and killed it. And then he sang Gunos Faust and he killed that. So I said, well, you're Elijah Muhammad. That, that's not any question. And then he said, well, you know, I'm singing. I was living in Manhattan Plaza at the time. So he, he was singing in a club in my building that night. 
he was singing at the West Bank Cafe, which is a club on uh, the right on 42nd Street. So I called my brother up. We went down to hear him sing, and I and hear this incredible jazz singer who could scat like Ella, who could do all this. Um, and plus, you know, he was doing uh, Strayhorn tunes and killing Strayhorn tunes in Ellington and and the hippest stuff. And so I said to Kip, I think I have to make Street a tenor too. Do we have to make Street and Elijah this, this played by the same person? I mean, it'll make That's sense because wow. yeah. So, so I, so I say he can be an antagonist throughout the opera too. And there's a lot of benefits to that. So we talk, talked about it. So I decided. So I went home that night. I modulated Street's aria from F minor to C minor, <laughs> and I, there it was. Now it's a tenor part, you know. So I made it a made, made it a, made him a tenor, and uh, Tom just embodied it. Took it all kinds of places. I mean, and also he had the liberty to improvise. He was an improviser. He could scat. When he sings play the game, he doesn't do it strictly the way that, you know, he plays around it. And it was great because it, there's this incredible energy about it. And every performance was a little different. The way I wrote the part, because I was thinking kind of of the jump blues stuff like Louis Jordan, you know, and the Tiffany Five and stuff like that, or Nat King Cole in the 1940s, you know, like late 1940s, you know, so that kind of jazz, rhythm, and blues combination, that, that thing. And then Cab Calloway, of course, too. But... Uh, trying to capture that and to give him the freedom also to make it his. And we talked about, you know, I see, you know, he didn't have to be literal with the, the music. Sometimes he could do things differently. And then when I did this new version, now I listened to Tom's version and I said, oh, I like that so much better when I wrote it. <laughs> you know, what I wrote was too square. So I started writing some embellishments of it with this idea of, you know, how it could be more expansive and stuff. And Victor's taken it, and now he does his own thing to it, too. You know, that's the thing. I mean, in order to do right by what you wrote with this, I'm thinking, yeah, this is an opera that should be done all over the place. Why isn't this done all over the place? Why isn't this like the big opera? I think, you know, now people are starting to wake up to this. But I think part of it is you have to really be bi-musical, in some senses tri-musical, not just the, you know, the players in, in the pit, but also the singers. You right. Well, one of the advantages of working with black singers is that they have many experiences. They, they sing in church. Maybe they sang in the black church. They sing opera, but some of them have sung jazz, too. It's not an alien art form. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so, and then you can find the, the hybrid musician, you know, the musician who, and I think that's, merged over time you know it was rarer in 1986 when i did it than yeah. it is now because they're exposed to many things i think an op opera program my wife would might disagree because she's an opera singer but i think they have to learn billy holiday they have to understand billy holiday because to understand how you use words and how you phrase and how you find rubata within time how you find freedom within the time rather than you know having to stop the time I agree with that completely. There's a phrase that I, I wrote here that I was thinking about describing what it is, that in order to do right by a piece like this, you need to have what I call the desegregated music culture, where, oh, yeah. where it's open. And it's interesting because on the one hand, there are still these folks now, although their, their voices are getting more and more muffled, you know, who want to preserve the Western classical tradition, you know, keep all this other stuff out. But then at the same time, it's interesting that this all came together in an opera 
about Malcolm X and about the Nation of Islam, which was about kind of trying to separate these strands. You know, like, you know, Elijah Muhammad probably wouldn't have approved of all the different kinds of music that were there. No, because they're puritanical. Yeah. There's a puritanical street music in America anyway. But I think Malcolm had reached a point with his movement when he formed his own movement, left the Nation of Islam. You know, he realized that the potential of seeing a broader idea, a desegregated world. But he realized something that, that the civil rights struggle was really about power and really about economics. And also that self-determination has to be part of that in order for black businesses to thrive. The struggle will only be successful if we uplift ourselves. And we can't rely on the white world to help us, you know. And I think, in a way, they kind of worked together, Martin Luther King and Malcolm, at the time. So it's interesting to me. Um, when I wrote X, I wanted to have the freedom to assume that there was no boundary in genre, that one can explore and go across cultural and genre boundaries to make something new. Yeah, and by that point, jazz immersed in classical music, immersed in traditional gamelan music. You know, there were all these different things that were in your head that you couldn't unhear. It was important to me that the music could reflect that broader sense. Sometimes they call it eclecticism, which I think is a bad word for it, because that's like thinking you're picking pebbles on a beach or something, you know. It's actually a resolution of identity, of discovering who you, who you are as a composer and as a person, and how that is reflected in the music you make. Part of it is what you, your education, musical education, what you're exposed to, and to me, all that stuff recalls emotional states, you know, experiences in terms of what the music implies, you know. And I think what that can relate to is subtext in a dramatic sense, you know, what is the subtext of what's going on. And so the music always provides, provides a subtext. Let's listen to a little bit of one of Anthony Davis's other operas, Amistad, which also has a libretto by Thulani Davis. Here's part of Act Two, Scene Seven's chorus, Nancy Brer Nancy, from the recording released on New World Records. I think what you said earlier on in the conversation, you know, reading Nietzsche and thinking about, you know, opera and how it relates, that these dualities refer more to Americans than they do to Europeans in a way, because we are a hybrid culture. Since the minstrel show, they haven't been a European culture. I mean, since 1840. (laughs) So that struggle is over. Also, the Europeans' vantage point on 
quote-unquote vernacular music, which is a funny word, but I don't think they have the love and appreciation of what that is. And it doesn't define them the way it defines us. They have a love for the music, so many fans of Ellington, et cetera, but I, but I think that it doesn't define them in the same way. So it's important to me to bring that into it, the equation. I mean, I didn't have to leave my traditions and leave what I love in music to be an opera composer. I brought that with me. You don't leave stuff behind. You don't do that. Right. Now, the other thing that we didn't get into yet that made X such a, a revolutionary piece is, you know, people talk about this very odd term, CNN opera. You know, <laughs> operas that are about contemporary figures, current events. Yours was the first. X predates Nixon in China. It predates, right. you know, all these other things that have kind of become part and parcel of what creating a contemporary opera that speaks to contemporary audiences are about. Well, yeah, I, it was kind of a pejorative the way it was used to CNN operas. It was kind of to dismiss this trend. If we're just borrowing, it's about the headlines, et cetera. Rather than finding, like in Malcolm, I found a tragic hero. You can relate it directly to Birth of Tragedy. What is a tragic hero? He even gave me three different names. So each act could be a, a change of name. This person who w went through the fire, went through a, this whole odyssey and transformation, and then when he finally has a realization of who he is and what, what he can do in the world, he's struck down by his own people. That's something that's really always got me. I mean, it wasn't like some crazy white dude with Martin Luther King, you know, so to me that, that makes it tragic outcome. And then his legacy, I mean, Malcolm's, I mean, Malcolm's such an identifiable figure, not just in the U.S., but in the West Indies, in the South America, and, and Africa, how rappers are inspired by Malcolm X, et cetera. He's a transcendent figure. I think that's the reason to do this. I mean, it's not just to capture some moment in history or some uh, voyeuristic kind of thing to looking at history. It's not about that. It's about how those stories resonate now, what they say to us, and what his story tells us about who we are now. But, you know, similarly, other operas of yours have mined recent history. You know, you have a whole opera about Patty Hearst, Tanya. And obviously, you know, the most recent Central Park Five, which is something that's very much on our minds because the former president of the United States, way before he was, kind of began his career as this demagogue. Right, exactly. In through Central Park Five, he's a minor character in that opera. So, you know, these are very much about characters that we know that in a way, you know, the early operas were about myths, but these are the myths of our time. You know, we may all know who Malcolm X is, but do we know who the real Malcolm X was? So he's sort of been mythified. Oh, of course. You know, and certainly, you know, Patty Hearst has been mythified in our culture. And, you know, the Central Park Five, you know, this is still an unresolved story, you know, for some people. You know, these people, you know, were jailed for years and they finally been exonerated and finally got reparations for it. But you still have people out there in the woodwork, including that former president. Of course, yeah. Insists that they're guilty. Yeah, with no evidence to say exactly. that they well, were guilty. No physical evidence, nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, it, the truth to them doesn't matter. No. Because they're only interested in propaganda. They're only interested in what will advance their individual agenda. 
and only interested in power. And, and that's unfortunate because, you know, right now, it's a really dangerous time in America. You know, we could be on the edge of fascism. So and that's something I worry about every day. I did a class this year on 20th century opera, and I was teaching uh, Fotsek, and I was doing Mahagoni, and I used this book called Opera and Fascism. And it was really interesting, you know, because, you know, what we face now is so much like the 30s, 30s in Germany and Berlin, you know, and the present danger of we could actually lose democracy, we could lose what we have. So it made it made more urgent for me as an artist, I think, is to start to present things to challenge those forces. I've always felt strong as an artist, but even more now. Well, certainly when you write a piece on the stage like this, of course, most of the people who are going to attend Central yeah. Park Five Opera are people who are going to agree, you know, with the truth. You so you can, you're, 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 you're preaching to the converted, right? Yeah. Right? But it was, it was interesting because uh, Jenny Rivera, who's the general manager at Long Beach, when we did in Long Beach, she said that she had Republicans on her board and they came to the opera and they liked it. They were interested in it because also you're trying to reach people at the level of empathy. In the opera, I was trying to get people to, what if I were one of the five or my child was one of the five? What does that mean? Well, how could I relate to that? When you get people to do that, then you might make a little change anyway. I think it's really important to stand up to that, those forces. I mean, because uh, where I live, I mean, California is a safely blue state in many respects. But if you just travel a few miles east of the West Coast, you realize you're in Trump land again. You have to keep on challenging that. Sometimes you can seduce people with art. When I was doing streets music, for example, I wanted to, to make the music fun so that the audience would imagine, wait a second, I would like to do that. I would do that. Then they'd say, uh-oh, I really would do that. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to go through things to see what the attraction is, what the appeal is, why some of you know, and that's something that's really fascinated me all the time, you know, um, you know, because it's so easy to just to cancel and condemn things and not go through what the experience is. Let's listen to Avery Brooks, who plays the Symbionese Liberation Army leader Chinkwe, sing I'm the Smoke in Your Jumbo Jet in the Patty Hearst-inspired opera Tanya, music by Anthony Davis, libretto by Michael John Lacusa, released on Koch International Classics. I'm the smoke in your jungle jet. I'm the bomb at your Super Bowl. I'm the outlaw. I'm the other law. I'm the anger you hunted down, who now hunts you. Captured, you salt and abused. I'm the scream at your bed and the chaos you try to deny. I'm the shadow in your closet, under your pillow in your dark and darkest dreams. I'm the bomb at your Super Bowl. I'm your love and your peace. When you create an opera, you do create, as you said, this zone of empathy for the characters. So then are there some characters who should be off limits? Like, could there, should there be a Putin opera, let's say? I'm sure there will be. 
There'll be a Putin opera, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was the Stalin opera, so there must be a Putin opera. I think you probably could only do a Hitler one with that as a comedy. Yeah, bring I mean, time for exactly. Hitler. That's about it. Been. I right. need to investigate no. what the Stalin opera is because I don't know. Well, no, it's a Robert Wilson that did it. Life and Times. Oh, right. of the Life and Times. Of, that's right. I don't know yeah. how much it's like about Stalin, really, but yeah, <laughs> and this idea of you know, you know, Stalin as a as a Heldon tenor. Yeah, what is it? <laughs> yeah, well, 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 you know, funny thing about Trump is because he's such a tenor. It's a tenor voice. And then it was interesting to write him. You could play him as a buffo, tenor-old kind of buffo thing. But someone asked me, you know, how do you write music for Trump? And I said, well, first of all, he's a tenor. Second of all, he repeats things a lot. Third thing is he never finishes a sentence. <laughs> So you have to look at look at how there's a characteristic about his speech. Why was that appealing to people? That launched his whole career as a politician. He exploited the racial divide for his own personal benefit as a political figure. What is the lure to it? What is that about? That gets interesting because uh, it's easy to just do it as a comedy. I've been thinking a lot about doing an opera maybe of The Great Dictator or something. And that's another piece that kind of deals with Hitler and stuff, but it was really interesting. And it supposedly came out of a comment Gershwin made to um, Charlie Chaplin. They were doing some kind of benefit. They were appalled by what was going on in Hollywood because Germans were raising money in Hollywood. So Gershwin said to Chaplin, allegedly, that Hitler's doing you. He's the, he's the little tramp. He's doing you, so why don't you do him? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That could be Putin or Hitler or Trump. But The Great Dictator would be, I think, might be interesting. So. Well, one piece we didn't get to talk about that I'd love to talk about just a little bit because I love it. And it's a piece that I wish would be better known was your Lear on the Second Floor, which I think is so moving and poignant. We talked about empathy before. I think I've never seen dementia portrayed. Right. in an operatic context, in a way that's so understanding and empathic and moving. My favorite scene is the scene where this nurse is trying to make her take a bath. And it's this, this yeah. reggae aria that's just fabulous. <laughs> Dr. Lear. Knock, knock. Who's there? Your damn shoes. Stop leaving them in the kitchen cupboard. Ridiculous. Girl, you ain't had none in weeks, but let me tell you something. I am here for you. In uniform bleached and starched. I am here for you. To see you through the chilling dark. During your rehab. I'll watch you from dusk till dawn. That was just a tiny portion of Act 1, Scene 4 of Lear on the Second Floor, music by Anthony Davis, libretto by Alan Havis, featuring Jarrell Williams as the nurse for Nora Lear, sung by Susan Naruki from the University of California telecast of the production. That was fun to write, and I had a great performance. Jarrell Williams is incredible. And he asked me, can I do it in a Caribbean accent? I said, sure. Yeah, oh, my God. Because <laughs> I, I wrote it as a reggae. And I was funny because I was thinking about the relationship. So this is an everyday occurrence. 
this is something that happens with, with different forms of dementia and stuff. One of the symptoms is actually sexual arousal and sexual and taking on other relationships and stuff, promiscuity. Thought about that a little bit. And that's something that no one explores much in this. This is opera. There's a movie that I saw with um, Julie Christie that was about Alzheimer's. That's where some of the title comes from because it was talking about the people on the, on the second floor who are more gone. My wife's aunt had Alzheimer's and died of it. And uh, I had a close friend in, who had Lewy body disease who was in San Diego. And so I saw the progression of, of that. And so that's where the counting comes from, the counting and this thing. And he was a scientist and a brilliant mind and a doctor as well. He could think, but he couldn't talk. He could only sing, which was really weird. Toward the end of his life, he could only sing to communicate. And I thought about that. Also thinking about the Shakespeare's Lear and what with the relationship with the fool. There's a lot of mysteries in that play. <laughs> like there's no Mrs. Lear. <laughs> so what is the storm? You know, there's a storm, or just a physical storm, or is it a mental storm? Is it a fugue state? So for me, the storm was about a mental state. And I had done incidental music for a production of King Lear that was at the Yale Rep with Avery Brooks's Lear. And it was based on the idea that it was the Olmec civilization or something. So African meets Mexican. So it was interesting because I, I, I wrote oh, incidental music. But I was frustrated with it because when we got to the storm, I had all these ideas for the storm, and, but the director didn't want me to do it. Because I, I knew Avery could sing too. Avery, you want to sing this storm? <laughs> I thought, thought of the storm also being all the voices, all these voices coming all around of the whole play collapsing on him at the same time. So the storm would be this collection of voices rather than, you know, thunder, lightning, all that shit. But the director didn't want to do it. So I was frustrated because I've thought about it. And then I thought, oh, maybe I should do an opera about a King Lear opera. And he said, Verity tried it, but he couldn't do it. I mean, it's too, too much. There's too much. But I could do kind of a take on it. And then it turned out my friend Alan Havis, who was a great playwright, he was asked to do a Yiddish Lear for Shelley Berman. And so he wrote a play of Lear that was in Yiddish for Shelley Berman, to put a Yiddish Lear. We were good friends, and so we were talking about it. So, so we finally got to, you know, we should write a Lear. So what would it be? And I, I talked to Tart about this uh, Julie Christie movie I saw, you know, that where she has an affair with someone else who's, who's also has Alzheimer's, and she doesn't remember her husband, you know, so she doesn't have remember her relationship with her husband. And there's something buried in their relationship that's screwed up. Okay, so I saw it using that, and so, so why don't we do call it, then we call it Lear on the Second Floor. So here we go. And then we took off from there. You know, it's like, uh, and then the fool became her dead husband. And it was an interesting, different take on it. And I think uh, Alan was really brilliant with that. Because as I said, we both have worked on Lear's. <laughs> I thought it was very, very moving. And, and well, it's, thank it's, you. Thank you. And it's Eastman School of Music is doing a production of it uh, in November. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. So these pieces are starting to enter the repertoire. This is this is exciting. Yeah. And this is sort of the, the final area I wanted to, to speak to. You know, you're obviously you're thinking about what the next project is, because composing music, creating music is very much about the present. But mm -hmm. now, you know, that this older piece that's, you know, X is more than 35 years old at this point. 
now it's getting done again. It's, it's part of history. You know, all these pieces of new music are going to become old music. They're going to be the past. Uh, What's your hope for this body of work? I thought, you know, when, during COVID hit, I didn't have any um, commissions. My commissions were canceled. All stuff's canceled. I, didn't, I was doing a few telematic concerts, but not that much. So I, I thought, you know, what am I going to do? And I said, well, Excite was a score I'd done by hand before computers. And then Shermer had done a, done a uh, parts and, you know, it was done in score, I think, or something. So I thought, well, I'd like to make the piece so that it could be done by orchestras, you know, as excerpts. You know, I could put narration with it so I could write some narration. So I started taking excerpts of the opera, like, and I'd done this concert kind of thing with my group with excerpts, but I thought I'd do it for the largest possible thing, of chorus, orchestra, and principals, and everything, but in you know, an ideal situation with these excerpts. So I started working furiously on these excerpts. Like every day, I worked like four or five hours on, on it during the COVID thing, because I wanted to, had to have something to do. I just about finished the excerpts, which is a little more than half of the opera, I guess, about an hour and a half of music. And then Yuval called me and said he wanted to do the whole thing. So I said, great, I've done the half. I might as well do the whole thing. So I did the rest. Doing it, I was, I looked at the score and I said, and I wanted to make it as clear as possible, clarifying some of the things in the orchestration. But then, you know, maybe I didn't need this repetition or maybe I didn't need this, making it as synced as it could be, as much more, as powerful as it could be. And revised version of the, the opera emerged from that. That was really exciting to do. It's like looking at a mirror and seeing, you know, the Dorian Gray thing or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, see, see your 30-year-old self <laughs> staring back at you. I had to protect that 30-year-old self from my 70-year-old instincts to change everything. But I, so I said, no, I got to be faithful to what I was thinking then. What I was thinking, my, my musical ideas were at that point. I'm really impressed that you know, did that deep dive into the past. I'm also impressed about your optimism for the future, that you were working on this piece, a big piece for chorus and full orchestra in the middle of a pandemic when there couldn't even be such performances. It gave you a certain kind of freedom because you had no deadline, right? <laughs> Not even a due date, no deadline. I can really fine tune this thing and do something, thinking about you know what I want this piece could endure and be preserved in the best possible way. And also doing enough computer thing would allow me to do if I wanted to do it with a smaller group I could adapt it I could do do stuff you know so it was something I really I thought about and I'm so glad that you know I did it and I was able to you know do the whole opera there's always a fire when you do something for the first time there's a flame that goes Celtic like it's like you're discovering all these things my first opera I discovered a ton of things so it was, it was really rewarding for me to go back and uh, maybe understand why I went into opera and why I wanted to continue to do opera and do new. I wrote a, an aria for a new opera too, so hopefully I can get some of these commissions. Is that the Great Dictator? Or is this something else entirely? No, this one is called about the Tulsa Race Massacre, called Ooh. Fire Across the Tracks, Tulsa, 1921, and wow. Tulani was writing a libretto for it. And then I, I'd done this other opera I'd started a while ago called The Reef that was based on Edith Wharton's novel. That's totally different from anything I've ever done because it's, you know, about kind of Gilded Age character study, but I interjected race in it because we put it in a uh, sugar plantation in, in the West Indies rather than Paris. And uh, 
the one of the characters is mixed race and the chorus is black. It's a different take on Edith Wharton. The race equation wasn't really in her writing that much. No. <laughs> well, I'm very eager to hear all of this stuff. Well, thank you, Frank. It's always a pleasure to, to yeah. talk to you. And it's great to talk to someone who knows something about <laughs> what I do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. This concludes our episode of Sound Lives. But before we go, let's listen to a little bit more of X. This is the finale of Act Two, which is Malcolm X's response to reporters when asked about the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Elijah Muhammad's reaction to Malcolm's response. Eugene Perry sings Malcolm and Thomas Young sings Elijah Muhammad. Music by Anthony Davis, libretto by Thulani Davis from the 1992 Gramavision recording of the opera. In my view, it's the case of the chickens coming home to New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.